Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, welcome to the conversation. Um, did you know that in the state of Utah, you could be arrested for an intimidating smirk? So watch how you smile or smirk, it could get you in trouble. Now, you have to do it to the right person though. If your intimidating smirk is towards a police officer, then you have committed a hate crime. I am not at all joking. And if you're smirking out there in Utah, you might be arrested. So we're gonna bring in Anthony Fisher here. He's a political columnist for Insider, and he wrote about this phenomenon. Anthony, welcome back. We 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 talked about this on the Young Turks. It's an unbelievable story, yet it's real. Um, and it's in the United States of America. So first tell us what they're doing in Utah and then we'll talk about the general concept overall. Yeah, so we'll talk about Utah, but it's happening in other states as we've, you've hinted. Uh, over the past, uh, it's actually two years ago, um, but certainly uh, in the years after the unrest in Ferguson uh, with so much more focus on police accountability, uh, increasing the uh, accountability of police. There's been a backlash in the form of what's been known as blue lives matter laws or back the blue laws. They, whichever slogan you wanna put on it, it's usually not officially in the legalese, but it's, it's how they've been sold to the public, generally in deep red states. In Utah specifically, two years ago, the legislature and signed by the governor added hate crime enhancements to their already existing laws that add enhanced penalties uh, for crimes that are committed uh, based on identity. And they enha- the enhancements in this case included your status as a law enforcement officer, your status as a military uh, personnel, uh, your status even as an EMT. All kinds of jobs and political points of view are now considered protected by hate crime enhancements in the state of Utah. So in what I was writing about in this particular case, as you mentioned, was a young woman, a 19 year old, who was arrested for disorderly conduct with the hate crime enhancement. Because in the presence of a police officer, she stomped on a cardboard piece of paper that had the words back the blue on it. And as you said, she smirked in an intimidating manner. So it's specifically in Utah, to intimidate a police officer, I guess to even annoy a police officer or any number of other professions can now be considered a hate crime. So this is brought to you by the people who say they believe in free speech. Yes, free speech, limited government, 
being able to annoy authority, all, all, all those kinds of things that we've you know been, you know, there's a lot of furor about big tech and free speech. But there really is no greater authority than armed agents of the state. You can talk about how much power Facebook or Twitter have, but nobody has more power than a than a officer of the law with a gun who is charged with your taking away your freedom if they see if they deem it fit to do so. Don't tread on me. But if she's smirking at you, make sure you arrest her. <laughs> okay, the, the right wing's lost their mind in this country. They, they, they're so logic free. There's just no way to communicate with them. If you're in favor of free speech and you believe, like they constantly talk about, I got my Second Amendment rights, and if the cops show up at my door trying to take my gun away or trying to give me a vaccine or save my life, I'm going to shoot them, right? Um, but the cops should be able to arrest anyone. That annoys them, that offends them, that that even looks at them in a way they don't like. That's insane. You cannot believe both those things at the same time. By the way, you shouldn't believe either one of those things. Uh, I mean, and it's funny that you you know the the right often talks about. There's a phrase that they've pulled out called "cry bullies," which they talk about generally in the context of college students. That the the that by crying. By expressing outrage and offense, that they have somehow hijacked the conversation, and it's an unfair fight because you can't really fight with somebody who's crying. In this case, it's the police officers who are saying that unarmed young women are intimidating them just by looking at them cockeyed. Yeah, and and stomping on a sign. Let's be fair. I mean, that does sound awfully dangerous. Um, and, and and you know, if you just stop to think about it for a second, like if they just picked any other random profession, you'd be. It would be even more absurd. Uh, hate crimes are, you know, against uh, blacks or or people of a different religion or background. Plus dentists. What? <laughs> Why? <laughs> and 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 accountants. Yeah. And everybody would be like, no, it's not. And you say it's against cops, and they're like, yeah, sure. It doesn't make any more sense. Well, let's just add it in anyway. It's a good way to intimidate people and run a police state. Um, and and look, I I was enraged by that story. Uh, I think Utah is now. Officially, a total police state. I mean, if you can't even look at cops in a way that they find offensive, you can't even control that. I might look at them normal, and they might find it offensive. That, yeah. I mean, if I don't know that they do that in Syria or North Korea. I mean, to look at a government official askance gets you arrested for a hate crime. That's it's the most insane law in the country. So I mean, we've, you know, the stop and frisk laws have have in basically every state have a thing called furtive movements, which basically means that if the if the police officer decides that a person is acting suspiciously, which if you're being trailed by a police officer or a police officer rounds the corner and you're not expecting them and you look a little shaken in your boots for a moment, that's a furtive movement that's deemed suspicious. This is kind of like the flip side of that in deep red states, where it doesn't—you don't even have to act suspicious. You could simply just be expressing yourself, your First Amendment rights to petition the government for with grievances. And as I mentioned in the Utah law specifically, the fact that they mentioned military personnel really kind of imperils the very concept of anti-war protests or anti-militarization protests or you know criticisms of American foreign policy. Because if you could be deemed as threatening or belittling a person because of their military personnel status, that could be potentially a hate crime under Utah law. Yeah, if you take a knee during the national anthem, you might exactly. literally be arrested for a hate crime. 
So how many states have laws like this? I don't have the exact number available to me, I apologize, but it's multiple. And Louisiana is one that was was kind of ahead of the curve on this. And you know, again, there is some context that these there is some context. I mean, there there were in the mid 2010s there were a handful of really terrible, brazen attacks on police officers, assassinations in both Louisiana and Texas. But that doesn't excuse anti-constitutional, unconstitutional laws like this. The response to you know the thing the thing is violence against police officers or assaults against police officers even threats against police officers already come with major enhancements it's a more serious crime to assault or threaten an officer of the law in any state in this country than it is to threaten or assault your random citizen so there's already enhancements but to add an enhancement that makes a person's job and certainly a person's job as a officer of the state. So you're basically a representative of the government to call that a identity akin to a religion, a race, a sexual orientation, a gender identity. It makes a mockery both of hate crime protections, identity politics. And it also makes a huge mockery of the conservative principle of the first uh, of free speech. If, if, you, if you are for these laws, uh, you may be posturing as a free speech warrior. You may be claiming to be just backing the brave boys and women in blue. But you actually don't believe in free speech if you think that to uh, vigorously protest the government, uh, including the officers of the government, if you believe that uh, annoying them, protesting them is a crime at all, much as a hate crime, then you don't believe in free speech. Yeah, that's just obvious. And should you be arrested for shooting an officer? Of course, but you don't need this absurd law on top of it. And so, all right, but that does get us to a difficult question. You know, I've always had an issue with hate crimes legislation because I, for similar reasons, and and also for this reason. So let me explain. So. If you commit violence against someone who is of a particular race, etc., you're gonna get arrested for the violence anyway. The hate crime law is an enhancement, as you put it, right? And there's, I get the reasons for it, and there are good reasons for it, but then there's the issue is it does punish speech or thought of a sort. And then we were, I was always worried all the way back in the day, and and you know, this is a controversial position for someone on the left to have, but I was worried that that they were gonna expand it and they were gonna expand it to other categories. And here it is, they've expanded it and they've expanded it to the most absurd category. Where it actually protects the people in power as opposed to protecting the powerless. So what's your take on on you know hate crimes overall when you look at yeah. it in this context? Well, I'm sure it'd be more interesting if I disagreed with you vigorously on this, but I kind of had the same journey. I obviously think that Racially or, or bigoted, you know, crimes with a bigoted motivation are abhorrent and a stain on our society. But I've never really bought into the concept of hate crime laws. One, because there really is no evidence that they actually prevent future hate crimes. There's no evidence that they add greater protections, societal protections for protected identity groups who are under attack. And the whole time I kind of suspected a slippery slope possibility, which has presented itself. Now I know people hate slippery slope arguments, you know, which you know for the for for the uninitiated might have been Jenk, might have been you or I at some point saying, well, if we 
have hate crime legislation and we're making it so that the specific motivation of a hate crime is a worse crime than just the horrible crime that was committed in the first place, then that's justice. But some of us feared that it could be splintered into things like what we're seeing in Utah and Louisiana and other states where because of highly publicized crimes against specific people that the identity protections could be expanded so broadly as to be completely meaningless, which is what I think they've become at this point. Yeah, I don't know if it was their intention to kind of intentionally or you know make a mockery of hate crimes until we get rid of hate crimes. I don't think so. I think their intention, I think their intention was actually to be a police state. And protect the the cops' feelings, but but I think that they've unintentionally created a situation where it does make us rethink it a little bit. And and look, and there's good reasons for it too, because burning crosses on someone's lawns, you can say, oh, it's just trespassing, trespassing and a little bit of endangerment, etc. But they're not burning the house; they're just burning the cross. And and so there's a good argument to say, no, that's a much worse crime, and that's a hate crime for good reason. But it does when the slope slides the other way, and all of a sudden, you know, there's new protected classes. It becomes absurd pretty quick. Um, so, anyways, we got it. We're out of time. But Anthony Fisher from the Insider, thank you so much for joining us. Really interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Jake. Have a good night. You too. All right, our next guest on the conversation had a description that puzzled me a little bit. His name is Tom Bowman, and and it's. He's got a website, bowmanchange.com. And then I missed one word. And so uh, the other part of the description was, what if solving the climate crisis is simple? And I was like, okay, that sounds good. What if? But is, it, is that your job title or something? And then I realized, oh, no, no, he wrote a book called What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. And then I thought, yeah, what if it is? I want to have Tom on and talk about it. So Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Uh, no problem. And uh, I saw Michael Mann, who's you know so important to the climate change movement, uh, praise the book. So that's wonderful to see. Uh, so, Tom, uh, I'm hoping you you can show me that it is simple. I'm crossing my fingers. How, how would it be simple? Well, you know, we've been taught about climate change from scientists who study very complex global systems. And we've been taught that the solutions to climate change also involve these incredibly complex and hopelessly intertwined global systems. So for example, if you want to reduce the carbon footprint of food production, you suddenly are dealing with international shipping, you're dealing with water supplies and water transportation and the development of fossil fuel based fertilizers and herbicides. And international finance markets and government relations, and it becomes this something that's so big that we're all left with the impression that only a few technical elite folks can even get their arms around it. And so it's like we've created this mental image of a Gordian knot that we don't know how to untie. And it makes all of us feel small and powerless. But if you turn that upside down on its head, and you ask yourself, what do we have to do to solve climate change? The answer is incredibly straightforward. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. We have to do it before mid-century and we absolutely don't wanna fail. And when you frame the issue that way, 
It means that we can all act, our businesses can act, our households can act, our local governments can act. Because we can all reduce fossil fuel consumption very, very rapidly if we choose to. And that will create the kind of cultural force that will start to move our politics in a more productive direction. So Tom, when you say end fossil fuel usage, well, we're gonna run into a couple of issues here, right? So- Sure we are. Yes. So obviously one issue is, well, we use it now, right? So we've got cars that use gas, etc. And you're sort of talking about 2050. Well, that's not that far, it's you know, less than 30 years away. <laughs> it's around the corner. Yeah. yeah. So how do we just stop using fossil fuels? So let's let's take the example of a small business or a personal household. Um, there are some very, very simple things you do. You switch to LED light bulbs and you plug everything into power strips that shut off at night. And that takes care of, for the most part, 10 to 20% of a person's electricity use. That's the, the very low cost stuff. If you live in a hot environment like I do, you want to minimize air conditioning, so you want shade. It's as simple as that. You want airflow through where you live, you want fans. Some of that stuff is so simple that we think it's trivial. but Collectively, it's not trivial. More importantly, as you start to budget out, you know, we, we talk about climate change as an existential threat. That's the term Biden has started to use. And yet we live as though we can go on this way forever. And that creates this bizarre cognitive dissonance. Electric vehicles are coming on the market like crazy. They're cheaper to operate than gas powered cars. And gas powered cars are getting much, much more efficient. So upgrading sooner rather than later, making a priority out of this to whatever degree we're able to and and according to whatever circumstances we're in, right? So if you live up a dirt road somewhere and it's rutted, you need a pickup truck, you need a pickup truck. If you live in a city, the question is, do you need a car? If you live in a city where you need a car, what kind of car do you really need to drive? So. These are the kinds of things that that seem small, but actually can make major reductions in our energy consumption. And then the most important thing we can do is we can start talking about what we care about and what we're doing with other people, because that breaks the ice. That starts to create this sense of mutual support. And, and in my experience, having decarbonized my business and talked with lots of other people about this, what happens is you liberate this really powerful sense that people have of worry about this and this intense desire to get rid of smog, to clean up our air, to clean up our water, to live healthier, happier lives. If we can liberate that sense, we can accelerate the kind of social momentum that we really need to deal with this challenge. <clears throat> but Tom, of course, the number one challenge is political, right? Um, so we can all chip away at it, but the government's gotta step in and, and do yeah. much larger changes. And there the issue isn't climate change at all. And in popular opinion, uh, about two thirds of the country right. believes that climate change is real and is man made. Right. Uh, for In other countries, that's like 99% uh, in America because of the propaganda, it's only two thirds. But still, it's two thirds in a democracy that should win easily. But of course, That's as you huge. know, it doesn't at all. Because our problem in America isn't the politics of climate change, the politics of campaign financing. And so, yeah. as long as they're taking, our politicians are allowed to take infinite money from fossil fuel companies, they're just gonna be corrupt and they're not gonna care about burning down the earth and they're gonna burn it down. So, how do we fix that? 
I think we fix it by not starting with federal politics. I think we fix it with people, with with business owners, with communities, with community groups, with households, with neighborhoods, with local governments, with state governments. The the social science on this is very clear that if you know, we have fought forever to try to bring the deniers along, those who are least amenable to acting on climate change. We've got to somehow convince them to join us in some sort of compromise that will address this challenge. But the social science says, you know, we would be much more effective if we empowered the people who are most worried about this problem to start taking it seriously, to start acting on it where they live, which is where they feel it most powerfully. And that means in local politics. It means in demands on local companies. It means where they work as employees or employers. You know, I, as I mentioned, I decarbonized my company and I discovered just how powerful the idea that people could come to work at a place that was doing something really productive was for the people who worked for me. No idea until we did that. And I think that this is the, the real hidden opportunity that's in our culture. You know, I, I spoke with a congressman who said exactly what you said. He said, you have to understand that everybody in Congress is there to represent the people who paid to put them there. And that is such a terrible indictment of our political system. And so I sort of wonder sometimes if if legislation will be the last act we make in fighting the climate challenge, that we will demand more of businesses, that we will demand more of our households, of our neighbors, of our, of our local governments. And that, and that eventually, as we change our culture and our social expectations of one another, that the federal government will pick up the pieces and come along behind. Now, we all hope that the Biden administration will be far more successful than than any previous administration on this issue, and we're working. You know, we should all work for that. But we shouldn't assume that it's all on them. That we don't have a role to play beyond demanding more of government. Yeah, I mean, I would ask people to get involved, not just in local government, but also in in the federal government's politics. And so, what I mean sure. by that is, sure. um, look, uh, you know, you said that we hope that Biden can do better. Well, he has a plan to do better. And in fact, right now they're arguing a three and a half billion dollar infrastructure plan that actually has really good parts of it that are uh, part of climate change. I'm a progressive. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't trust corporate Democrats. And so, if I tell you it's a good bill, it's a good bill. Okay, so and so now having said that, it's unlikely they'll pass it. And it's because Biden won't try and I don't really believe him that he wants to try. And and there's not enough pressure on Manchin and Cinema who are corrupt. And so we have to have the courage to also not just like beseech, but but fight. That's my opinion, because Tom, we're gonna run out of time. I mean, June was the hottest month recorded in, in, in over a century in America. It was four degrees hotter than a, a normal June would yeah. be. Across the country, that is massive. That is un, unreal that it's four degrees hotter. Overall, temperatures have risen two degrees already on the planet. That is massive. And, and right now, about 95% of the West is, is under drought. And we're worried about Joe Manchin's feelings. That's right. That's right, and so there is an there is a powerful move to make publicly in the federal political fight, but we also don't want to be downhearted or held back if those battles go badly from time to time because it's a tough tough row to hoe and we should fight it hard 
But we should also get moving. We don't have time to wait for the federal government to, to finally come to the table, especially if they come to the table in a half-hearted way. We need to stop emissions as quickly as we possibly can. And we need to make our communities as climate resilient, as adapted as we possibly can. We need to start understanding that the migra- this migration debate um, and immigration debate is really about climate change because people are migrating all the way north across Mexico because it has become unlivable in the tropics where they're from. Think about that. This is gonna get worse and worse and worse as time goes by. We need to put a stop to it. And that means we need to start owning this. We need to start taking it on as if it's my responsibility, it's your responsibility, it's each of your listeners responsibility. And those of us who are willing should step up challenge ourselves to do more than we thought we could do and talk about it with our peers and discover when we do that. And this is the best part. You discover you're part of a community that cares just as deeply as you do. And this sense that I'm the alone voice in the wilderness goes away and you realize we just need to crystallize the movement that's actually here in our hands. We just haven't recognized it yet. Right. Okay, we're out of time, but your migration point is a very good one. And soon Canada is gonna start building a wall because <laughs> yes, I mean, it's not just Las Vegas. Have you been to Houston in the summer? It's, yeah. it's become nearly yeah. uninhabitable. And so we're all in, a, in deep, deep trouble here. Tom's book is What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. Tom, thank you so much for joining us, we appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely.